Hey, it's Dr. Miller. How are you doing? Hey, Karis. Good to be with you. Thanks for taking a few minutes to chat. I'm so excited. And I don't call you Dr. Miller. I don't know no, why I just did that. I call that. you Ben. <laughs> Please call me Ben. Yeah, call me Ben. I'm going to call you Ben. Ben, who wears the bow ties. Oh, what? Before we get to the bow tie. So, <laughs> so I don't um, introduce uh, folks, you know, using a bio or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I let people introduce themselves. So why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? All right. Well, I will do that. So my name is Ben Miller. I am a, a musician at heart. I'm a father of two amazingly uh, radical teenage girl, well, one teenage girl and one seven going on 14 year old girl. Uh, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and am uh, passionately advocating for things that we could do to change mental health in this nation. Wow. Okay. Great introduction. But let's start with the musician. Brand new information. Talk to me about that. Well, I mean, it's everybody gives you the same starting place. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, my academic appointments at blah, blah, blah. And I just think, you know, you should start with the things that you really, that really help define you. And I am a musician. I love playing guitar. I've played guitar my entire life. When I'm not talking to amazingly talented people like yourself, I'm listening to music. So it's just a part of of me. And actually, cares to be kind of funny and on the nose. I've tried to take a lot of the lessons that I've learned from music and apply them to the work that I do in mental health from the importance of being able to improvise to being creative to knowing how to lead a band i mean all of these things Uh like i apply to my day my daily life now i don't get to rock like the neon yellow guitar i've got over here but you know a lot of the principles still work i love the way you talked about um taking the creative process of music and i think of like jazz where it's improvisational and sometimes it feels um, you know, cacophonous, but actually it's not cacophonous. It's actually quite harmonious in the cacophony. I don't even know if that made any sense, but I think it did, um, right? But using that same kind of skill set and transferring it over, that's really powerful stuff right there. You can go with the jazz musicians, which I, I love, and I think that I- improvising is is key. Or you can also go with like the punk rockers, which is where I think you and I probably trend towards, which is, you know, they were disruptive and fought the status quo. And, you know, they lit couches on fire and threw them out of hotel rooms. I mean, they did the things that they needed to do to say that it's got to change. And I'm yep. going to rebel against you telling me it has to be this way. Yeah, I feel like if we had more people that were willing to do that in this country, mental health would be in a far better place than it currently is. So you're saying something really, we're going to get to this bow tie because that just <laughs> seems like a kind of contradiction right now. But yeah. you know, I used to uh, be in retail management when um, I left college got kicked out uh, when I left college the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the first time I got kicked out, the second time I actually graduated. But anyway, um, I uh, my, my parents said, look, you're either going to work um, or you're going to go to community college, but you're just not going to live at home and not do anything. So I said, fine. And I went and got a job at Commander Salamander, which I don't know if you're aware of this store in Georgetown in DC, but um, it is a it was a punk rock store. And so I used to work at the, but I tell people that they're like, you did what? Okay, now it might not be so surprising because I rock an undercut that's usually purple. But, you know, back in the day of like working for the federal government, it's like, you did what? (laughs) Yes, I work for the punk rock store. But um, so let's talk about the bow tie situation. So I ask you this because um, usually when I see you, which has um, generally been in kind of like, you know, webinar, Zoom, things like that, you're wearing a bow tie. And I'm thinking, okay, he's rocking a bow tie. And it's not just 
you have your blue bow tie or your purple bow tie or your lime green bow tie. You have like mad bow ties. So <laughs> let's, let's talk for a second about the bow tie situation. Yeah. So one of my grandfathers always said, you know, son, you want to be the best dressed person in the room because you don't want people to be distracted by how you're not dressed properly. And he was a politician and always felt like he needed to put his best foot forward. So he always wore the same suit, the same tie, but he looked like he looked like a nice guy. Um, I, I kind of upped that a bit. And I did it years ago when I first got into academia. I used to be like the youngest person in the room. Now I am not near the youngest person in the room. And so I started with socks and I wanted to have like socks that stood out, you know, like really bright pink socks. And I, I remember I was doing an event on the Hill in DC with a couple of senators. And, uh, I, you know, we got to sit on these high, high stools and you, you know, you pull your legs up and everybody can see your socks. And I just remember thinking, man, this is pretty cool. Like mm -hmm. I've got these amazingly awesome socks and they're all wearing the black or the normal socks that aren't exciting. So it started there. And then it went from there to the ties that I was wearing. And I had like, you know, 200 ties and I wore a different one every day and they were pretty bright and flashy, but they were still tasteful. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to pocket squares and then it ended up where like, where do you go from here? So I went to the bow ties. My grandfather on the other side of my family had always worn bow ties. And he gave me a bunch of his, but they were the really thin, almost like bolo-esque uh -huh. bow ties. They didn't work for me. Uh -huh. So I went and started hunting and I found some amazingly cool, very bright, some might say too bright bow ties that I, you know, I wear on yeah. occasion. Not too bright, not too bright. And now that I've seen you in person, you're rocking shoes too, but we're not going to go down the whole fashion situation. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but it's like, I think this is why it's like, oh, wow, the bow ties and the socks and the shoes, because I'm very much the same way when I show up in a suit, people are afraid of me. I mean, and or I'm just maybe too off putting. I don't think that's the right word. I don't know what it is. But when I started working more in corporate and I needed to really interact with people, I found that suits just were kind of scary. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should try something a little bit different. So, yeah, socks, shoes shirts like you know i wear kind of funky clothes as many people even at the federal government i said i'm not giving that up i'm still wearing my funky clothes so. i mean we have to show our personality somehow yes right? and, yes, and i exactly. think clothes is a good expression of showing a little bit of your personality from your kicks to your bow ties it's just a, it's right. a nice way for people to see beyond just the superficial talking point especially when we're talking about mental health. I think that becomes, you know, for some people, a very difficult conversation becomes a complex conversation. And so the more kind of approachable and almost, I don't want to say, well, yeah, I think fun. I mean, I think there's something fun about fashion, then it becomes something maybe that makes it easier for people to enter in. So how did you get interested in mental health? Oh, well, I, I think a lot of it began in college when I didn't really know what I wanted to major in, like so many of us. And I should have probably got kicked out. I never got kicked out. We did some really stupid things in college. This is before cell phones, thank God. So none of it's on record, but you know, just <laughs> silly stuff as kids, breaking windows accidentally and all that. And I was a really, I, I loved abnormal psych. There's something about the class, like it was engaging and entertaining. It was a good professor. So I was like, you know, I'll start there. And I did what everybody did. You start to get a, a, a liking for something in college and you just stick with it. And so I stuck with it and got an undergrad degree in psychology. I also got, you know, a double major in religion, which that's a much longer conversation we can have. And uh, when I graduated college, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had this psychology degree. And so everybody was like, well, you know, go get a job as a case manager for your local county city. 
So I, um, I came back to where I was from. I was newly married and I had to get, I had to figure out a way to make money. So I started this horrifically <laughs> underpaid job as like a case manager for kids that had been in the system at some level. It could have been in foster care, could have been juvenile justice, could have been just based on truancy. I, it didn't matter. Um, CPS, I, I was there. So what happened was I started showing up in these kids' lives and I would go to their homes, I would go to their schools. And I realized that so much of what plagued them wasn't some like diagnosis that a psychiatrist wrote on paper. It's that their living environment, their families were so up against a system that didn't allow them to thrive that it, it just worked against their mental health. So I started um, one of the schools that I showed up at on a regular basis. Uh, there was a principal there who was a psychologist and he said, hey, listen, man, if you really want to help these kids, if you really want to change the way that they are, their mental health is, you have to go and change the system because the system is broken. He, he said, you know, I'm a psychologist and I believe that psychologists uh, really understand systems and families. And so why don't you go and get your doctorate in psychology? And that's what I did. So okay. it literally began yeah. with me seeing the pain in the eyes of these kids and these families and how they were so up against a system that really couldn't and wasn't available to help them. Yeah. And I think system, there probably should be an S on it because like systems, yes. right. And how many yeah, don't right. um, are not coordinated and connected. So when we think about this whole system situation, how many things are wrong with it? Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> but you know, how many, how many things could be improved? Let's, let's go strength-based. So there's some good things and yeah. what can we improve? Well, let me, let me, let me answer your question in a strange way. And and say that, you know, I think the most significant thing that could be improved is by actually creating a system. So maybe ah. that's like the, the best and the worst at one time, but it's a falsehood that we have a system in place, period. I mean, none of the pieces consistently connect. There's no way for us to understand what to consistently expect. The outcomes are few and far between if we ever know what they are. I mean, it's just no system. And if you think about what systems actually are, there, there are, in some ways, there is a predictability. If I do this, then that happens. And none of that exists in the mental health space. And, and I think in large part, it's because it's been predicated, these, these lack of systems, I don't know what to call them if it's not a system, but we'll use the word system for sake of argument here. You know, these, these pieces that we've put together into what some people call a system, there you go. You know, it's predicated on transactions. It's not actually built on relationships. It's not built on the things that heal. It's not built on the things that matter. So what we end up doing, people like you and I, is that we come in and we try and get those pieces to come together. And what I think we realize almost immediately is that our foundation is one that's based on those transactions. It's not about people. And, and I think that is, that is both our, our greatest weakness and also our, our greatest moment of opportunity. What does a system look like that's connected, that can provide what people want, that's relational, that's focused on how to make those connections to give people a sense of purpose, meaning, belonging? I mean, there is so much there that we just ignore. Right, 
I was thinking when you were talking about punk rockers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was not a punk rocker who threw stuff out the window. I just want <laughs> to be clear about that as my father listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> it's never too late, Karis. <laughs> well, I am a provocateur, as you know. But yes. um, I, you know, I've been thinking about the consumer survivor expatient movement and how in ways there are punk rockers, right? That they're the people who are like railing against the man. And I remember at like different conventions, I'll do, okay, APA meetings, for example, you know, there'd be, uh, you know, picketers outside and they'd have sort of these messages, strong messages for psychiatry about ways in which um, psychiatry, you know, was harmful to them or to people. And I'm wondering, you know, if, how do we hear those voices? Because I think it's really tough that, you know, when it's the group or people who are, you know, railing against the man, I'll just put it that way. How does their pain, anguish, and also recommendations about um, improvement, how do they get heard? How does that happen? It, well, I think the short answer is it, it doesn't really. Mm. And and I hate to admit that as a guy who's in a wonderful position of, of privilege and leadership, you know, we try and bring forward those voices as much as we can, but we're one of, of many who do that, but not enough. And so that yeah. means that a lot of these patients, I mean, I, Paris, I've got postcards in my desk right here. I can pull out. I've got notes from families that have lost children over the last couple of three years. And it, they just, they're, they're crying out for the same thing, which is help us make it better. Mm-hmm. And those voices begin to fall in deaf ears. And I think part of it is because we become desensitized to how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the data, I mean, we are, now seeing overdoses at the highest they've ever been. Every year it's gone up for 20 years. Suicide rates continue to spiral. I mean, it's just like all the data points that should actually give you some cause for alarm, people are ignoring. And each of those data points is a family member. It's a friend, it's a colleague. And we've just, we've turned off our brains to thinking that this is something that we have to address. And now not all of us, but a, a lot of us. And so I think that, you know, how do we get those voices heard? Well, I think it begins with small things. And those small things are constantly showing up, even though you feel like you're the only person that shows up, you know, persevering, being the school at the school board meeting, showing up at the city council meeting, going to DC to meet with your member of Congress, all of those things, they're like back at the napkin stuff. But if you don't do it, and we don't do it in droves with the mental health community does not do it doesn't matter. It, I, you know, I, I don't want to say it so glibly, uh, but it, it just, we're, we're only going to be seeing incrementalism and we're yeah. not actually going to be seeing the change that we want or we deserve. And for those families that have experienced loss, for all of us that have kind of suffered through the last several years and know what despair feels like, like this is our moment to rally together. Yeah. You know, I know you're not going to light the couch on fire, but if there ever was a time to do so, this is that time. I can't yeah. tell you a more propitious moment, Karis, than the now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an, I'm an interesting advocate in that. Um, <laughs> I'm sort of, how did somebody describe it? Oh, you're so graceful. <laughs> and it was like, okay. <laughs> right. But you know, my, I think the, the issue for me is that um, if I'm too loud or too much, then I'm the angry black woman. And so I have to kind of consider how do I, how do I present the, 
sofa or couch that I that's on fire that I want to throw out the window in a way that people can like catch the couch, kind of get some <laughs> fire extinguisher, yeah. put it out with me, kind of figure out how did the couch get out the window? And how do we, you know, when we were talking about systems, this is going to be one of the times when we probably bounce around a little bit. Um, but when I think of system, mental health system or the systems, mental health, housing, et cetera, education, I'm wondering why do we have a separate mental health and substance use disorder system? I do not know if that is the right way to even think about it, but, you know, I think about when, um, I was having thyroid issues. Um, you know, it, 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 you go to your primary, well, I didn't go to my primary, ended up in the ER is what happened. Okay, so there are first a couple of things. Sorry, let me back up. I ended up in the ER. Then they said, okay, you know, you're going to have to stay overnight because your numbers are all over the place and we got to figure out what's going on. Clearly, you have something like in your throat, which was called my thyroid, that was actually thyroid cancer that was quite big, et cetera. Um, and so they needed a specialist and all this kind of stuff. That seems to make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I encountered that I had never encountered before was when the doctor was talking with me, there was this dude all dressed in black who was typing on the, on the laptop. And here I am, this mental health kind of professional person kind of I, yes, I'm concerned about my health, but I'm really interested in how they're providing the care. And I thought, who's the dude in the black typing on the on the computer, on the laptop, so the doctor can look directly at me and have this continual like development of relationship with me. I was like fascinated by that. And then there was this other person who was a hospitalist. And I'm like, well, who the heck are you? Mm -hmm. Like, what's a hospitalist? This is so fascinating. You don't have this in mental health. So what's up? Yeah. W-H-A-Z-Z-U-P with a hashtag in front. Like, what's up? Well, let's go back to your first question, which is, you know, why do we have this, this separate mental health system? And, and I think there's actually a, a history that guides us into understanding, you know, why we have it the way that we do. We won't bore your listeners with the whole backstory here, but I will fast forward till, you know, till after World War II, usually we start there. That's the easiest place to go. You know, there wasn't any such thing as a mental health benefit. You know, we had to create these, you know, you had health insurance, you had health benefits, but you didn't really have mental health benefits. And when you think about all the, th and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at notes here, so I'm just going to go off the top of my head. But if you just kind of think through history, okay, uh, 1963, you know, JFK decided that he wants to listen to the science and the experts and deinstitutionalize and get folks out of hospitals because we've got medicines, we've got communities that are going to be able to help. Let's put them out to where they, they actually can improve. 1965, you have the creation of CMS, which uh, in effect took a lot of those standards that had begun to separate mental health as a separate system and it codified them and said here's the rules that we're going to put in place that make sure that people can't just be thrown back into hospitals so every and I, I could keep going on you know 1981 1996 2010 i mean i could just go on mm -hmm. and but every time you have a major policy initiative in this country it furthers the separation of mental health as its own thing and so even when we saw you know the mental health parity law that was passed, you know, that was trying to say, well, if we are going to have these two separate things, let's at least treat them at, uh, at, that they're equal. And we still don't do that, you know, 12 years after the implementation of the law. So I think it's the right question to ask. And I don't know if anybody has really ever fully answered it, because if you just if you and I were just sitting there having some coffee talking this through, I would say, Karis, you know, my biggest frustration is that we always have a separate thing for mental health. 
Like it just, it works against us being comprehensive, holistic, team-based. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really incentivize people to address all facets of your health. And what we do is we say, okay, you've got that mental health condition, whatever we're going to call it. You're over there with them. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and actually, you know, the, like the decade of the brain in the 90s, that we saw some of the most horrific um, increase in mortality in individuals that had di been diagnosed with mental illness because we forgot about their bodies. Yes. All we did was medicate. And so like right. we have these like little specialized fiefdoms that have been kind of grown up over the years and solidified through large part policy and large part special, special interest. But it makes it really hard to tear those silos down and to do what's actually best for people. So it doesn't come close to answering your question, but man, I feel like it is the right question to ask. Well, and I think this is exactly it. It's like, I don't know that anybody has the answer, but we have to beg the question. So we beg the question, we put it out there, we've discussed it, we got listeners who hopefully are like, wait, what? <laughs> right? And now they have to kind of go and wait a second, now I got to go check this out. But I think it's really such a powerful thing because, you know, again, I'm going to throw, you know, my race on the table just because I can. And I, I always think, but separate's never equal. And I know that as a Black person, it has never been, it's still TikTok, TikTok today, not equal. So, and, and people have said, well, you know, we have to have it separate because on the physical health side or general health side, um, you know, they don't know how to do mental health. Well, of course they don't, because we don't let that, we don't put it together. Like we, we can't just keep saying that that's the reason why. So where's the um, incentivizing, and I guess, you know, CCBHCs, I'm sorry, Certified Community Behavioral Health Center, sorry, I'm using acronyms, yeah. you know, is it is an example of what it could be, but it's kind of so bizarre. We have to put it back, we have to take apart and then put it back together again, yeah. or figure out how yeah. to do that. And then I'm going to add one other little, yeah. little sort of, thing in there, which is, as I say, well, there are two things that, you know, that I'm, I've been saying recently, but one is, um, you know, people live and heal in communities. They don't live and heal in systems. So how, as you said, you know, we probably have a lot of things right here in our communities or right at our fingertips to help folks. How do we help drive that as part of the solution base rather than trying to throw everything into this tiny cup of a system? Yeah, I, I think it begins with listening. And I mean, I know that seems so basic, but I mean, when was the last time that a, a consequential policymaker could come into a community and just sit down and listen? And not these ridiculous town halls, but like they came and they said, I really want to hear what's working for you. Anybody, I, I don't care who you are. My, I mean, my 14 year old can tell you everything that's broken in healthcare because she has to listen to her dad talk on the phone all the time about it. But I mean, she knows, like people know what's broken. Not many people know what the solutions are because we don't listen. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, our, that's gonna be our, our next step. So again, going back to our assumptions here, we can assume that a program like CCBHC solves a problem, but does it? Mm -hmm. I think that, it, that, so it begins with listening, you know, making sure that the folks that are in a position of authority can actually listen to the solutions. The second thing, I think it requires is for those communities to be able to articulate their message in such a way that it can be heard by the audiences they need to hear it. Now, I'm not talking about how clearly you communicate. I'm talking about how often you communicate. You know, mm -hmm. tell how many times do you show up and say it was this? If it's just that one time or that one op-ed or that one, you know, radio appearance, whatever you did, like that's not enough. 
we have to have volume here and not just the the amplitudes mm. here you know how loud it gets you actually have to have enough voices coming together and and i think that that is something that communities sometimes don't do because we are so um well especially now in 2022 i mean we're we're not necessarily holding hands doing anything yeah and yeah and, and, and so to come different to, things that's right they're saying yeah. different things uh we're not necessarily as empathic as maybe we once wore and care as much about the other person next to us and so we, there's just not as much of that as i think there would have been in the years past so yeah. i don't know karis I, I do feel like it's on us like people like you and i to help really foster some type of connection with these voices and allow them the chance to be heard give them yeah. that moment on stage allow them the, the the place that they can be influential so and that's the purpose of the podcast, um, you know, is just talking to different people and getting their um, sort of experiences out there into the world. And of course, you know, the other thing I talk a lot about is, and it's not very popular, but I think it's true, is um, our focus on crisis systems and um, inadvertently, or, you know, what do you call that, an unattended consequence of yeah. maybe, um you know, catapulting, for lack of a better word, you know, a crisis industrial, crisis system industrial complex sort of situation. And what do we do about that? Because I am just so worried we're setting up yet another system in front, in front of and behind two other systems that don't get a lot of attention, if you will. So we don't really have a mental health system. We have a fragmented sort of mess. And now we're going to spend a lot of time and energy building a crisis system which is going to connect to a icky, okay, whoop, wrong word, strength-based Karis, <laughs> you know, a mental health system that could use lots of improvement. What are we doing? I, you know, this is where I like to talk about in medicine, there's these words that we sometimes use like de-prescribing. And, and you see it a lot with older adults. Like sometimes folks will show up and long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and, and they'll be on a, just this massive amount of medication. And so one of the first things that a good geriatrician probably does is they begin to de-prescribe. Well, I don't know if you really need that, Ms. Smith. I don't know if you really need that. And what you find is that you actually remove problems when you take away that medication that was supposedly addressing one of the problems. Okay, so that's one term to consider here. And I'm gonna get to your question. Okay. The second is what we get from tech. In tech, we talk a lot about innovation, but there's this word that people um, also use called exnovation, which is to remove innovations that actually stand in the way of allowing a newer innovation for taking hold and being successful. Now, fundamental to this entire logic here is the willingness for someone to take something away. And I think that is the philosophy and the mindset that does not exist right now within mental health or healthcare. Rarely do we take things away because we've built fiefdoms. We've built up systems where people are sometimes making a lot of money, sometimes not making much money at all, but they've, it's still their legacy. Uh, you don't want to go to anybody and say, hey, listen, you know, what you've been doing for the last 35 years actually isn't needed anymore. It doesn't work that way. So how do we begin to like have those hard conversations around exnovating or deprescribing, whatever your fancy word is, to get to a place that we can actually create the system that we need. And so that's why I feel like it comes back to, you know, the concept that we talked about earlier. There are some things that are gonna have to be blown up. There just are. You're gonna have to find somebody who has the leadership, the courage, the charisma, the ability to lead a coalition, whatever it is, 
that actually gets rid of the things that are structurally impeding our ability to move forward. Until we do that, we're always going to have two separate systems. They will never be equal. They're never actually going to be satisfying. I can't, I mean, you and I could talk for days about just what an experience is like as an individual trying to yeah. get care. And it's not what anybody would want, yeah. but yet that's what our systems give us. And we accept it because we don't know what other options there are. Right. So right. to me, like, I feel like there's something in there that is, is um, prescriptive for us to follow that requires us to begin to take away or peel apart or something, these elements that just don't work. So interesting you use the word innovation and um, exnovation. I always use the word isogete and exegete. So hilarious, right? <laughs> that there's this sense of, are we isogeting or are we exegeting? What are we doing here? And no, I'm not going to explain that on the podcast. Look it up. So <laughs> um, so the, uh, and I'm going to do one last thing because um, I want to make sure that we get one thing in is, you know, when you were talking about, you know, deinstitutionalization happening in 63 and CMS in 65, now, I never, as I'm looking at these numbers, I'm thinking that this is when the civil rights movement was at its height and that, you know, you're working on voting rights and you're working on the Civil Rights Act. And again, you know, we still are not seeing, quote unquote, perfection if there is such a thing um, in race and race equity and things like that. And, you know, if these were happening in 63 and 65, that's sitting on top of a time when racism was still sort of rampant. So you almost have to factor that in and unpack all of that as well. There's a couple of things to take from it. I mean, there's the, the really obvious one, which is that, you know, we still criminalize individuals that have substance use disorders or are mentally ill. And if you look at how, you know, especially um, communities of color have been put in prisons and jails for criminal possession of fill in the blank and the addiction crisis that never wants to get addressed you know, like we see racism play out in nefarious ways throughout our systems, especially in the mental health SUD space. And I, I think there's something there that just needs that's a that's a much broader, more macro conversation, but specifically around the civil rights movement, what civil rights got right, and, and, and then the it was applied to even marriage equality, is that they had a simplified message, they knew exactly what they wanted to do. They had leadership with charisma, that could consistently articulate that message in a way that people understood what the change was, what needed to happen. They had financial mechanisms that constantly put money into supporting their, their movement. They had policy agendas. And the key here, mental health has never had that. Yeah, We've never applied these social movement principles that worked so well in the 60s for uh, racial equality that worked so well in 2000s for marriage equality. We haven't done that. And I challenge folks that are listening, think about what your message would be that could simplify what you're trying to accomplish for mental health. Like what, what is your marriage equality made it about love? You know, how, what is the mental health movement going to use as its rallying cry? You know, I don't know, but I think that that is our next big challenge. And those social movement principles are something we as an organization adopt. We think they're very powerful, but yet our field doesn't do anything with it. Now, that is, I mean, you're just, you're just hitting on some stuff that, 
you're confirming some things for me. So I, I do appreciate this is, you know, my involvement in, you know, the mental health movement, both consumer survivor, ex-patient and family movement. I've always said, you know, where's our March on Washington? Hello, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? When you think about what the March on Washington was about, how it presented itself, it was about jobs and employment. However, it was, of course, about equality and civil rights, but it stood on something that everybody could wrap their head around, which was just jobs and employment. Kind of trying to wrap our heads around that, I've always said um, also, you know, we need to look to some of the other movements to see how did they do their work, rather than trying to kind of think that we're so unique. Like we can talk about like, we're on the backs of the civil rights movement, we're on the backs of the women's movement, we're on the, okay, but what did they do? And how did they do it? And are we using those principles? So you laid them out really nicely. I appreciate that. Because I never even thought about how to lay them out in such a um, super articulate way. Well, there's actually seven of them that I didn't go through all the way. But I believe it's what we as a foundation are trying to get right. And we're doing this with a lot of our partners. But if we could apply those principles that have been so successful, how could we not get a different outcome? Yeah. Okay. But maybe you can say all seven, because the last thing I ask everybody is to do some wisdom dropping, which is kind of like the one thing or seven things (laughs) that you might want our listeners um, to know and or to do. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go back. I'm not going to give them the seven things because I don't want you to do all those things. I'm I'm going to give you two things. And, and these are two things that I almost have said for maybe 20 years, but I believe that if everybody did this, it would make the world a better place. Number one is you got to ask those around you, how you doing? You got to ask them the, the really serious question around, you know, how are you really? And be there and be prepared when the answer might be something that's a little hard to hear. Mm-hmm. And to know, to know that there is these moments that change people's entire trajectory for their life. And that moment might be the time that you're sitting with them asking them that hard question. So that's number one, ask those around you that you love how they're doing and sit there with them, listen to them and be able to respond. It's game changing. Number two, don't let your voice simply be something that, you know, is only heard in the echoes of your shower when you're singing Marvin Gaye at 7 a.m. You know, let this be something that actually comes out to the world, that you share your story you share the power of what you think good should look like for mental health to anyone who will listen. There's something normalizing about it, but there's also something empowering about it. It strengthens you, it strengthens those around you, and it allows for us as a, as a, as a community to have a much more thoughtful and detailed conversation around where we should go as a nation for mental health. So be heard, speak up, speak out, be consistent with who you talk to. This will change our culture, Karis. I mean, I'm a policy wonk. I could talk about, you know, here's the five policies that we should discuss and blah, blah, blah. But truly, at the end of the day, it comes down to people like me and you talking to each other. Yep. And yep. I want to be there for you. And I know you want to be there for me. And I know there's a lot of folks that are listening to this, that if we simply applied that same philosophy, how it might change lives. Amazing stuff. And that is why you, Ben Miller, are an unapologetically Black unicorn. Yay! (laughs) Welcome to the tribe, of which there are so many people who are in this tribe. So thank you. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Really, really appreciate it. Great stuff. It's an honor, Karis. You're one of a kind and amazing. And I now look forward to officially being able to wear my lapel pin 
uh, with pride. So thank you. Amazing. Amazing. And so for our listeners, thank you so much for joining in and don't forget to subscribe and join into unapologetically black unicorns next week. Thanks so much.